Input. Output. Hi, this is Input Output, and I'm your host, Mark Yarm. Today on the Input Output podcast, we've got stories about fashion, past and present. Despite repeated reminders from public health officials to wear face masks when we're outside, there aren't many guidelines that can tell us which homemade masks work better than others. However, researchers at Florida Atlantic University have some insight into this. And do the masks that you wear every day really stop your cough or sneeze? Florida Atlantic researchers turned out the lights to track the spread and just how well the masks work. News writer Maureen Kasana recently wrote about their study for InputMag.com. Here she is reading an excerpt from her piece. In an effort to demonstrate the differences between different masks and the kind of shielding they can offer, a Florida Atlantic University study published by the American Institute of Physics gives us actual droplet visualization on the issue. It's quantitative analysis taken to another level with the help of a mannequin head that coughed and sneezed out droplets. Welcome back to the show, Maureen. Good to be back. So this is sounds like a very useful study. I've been wondering myself what kind of masks are effective. As far as masks go, what, what's the best option? The study doesn't necessarily, I think that's one of the beautiful parts about it. It doesn't necessarily give you the best fabric idea or the best kind of fitting, but it does give you indications on different fabrics, their ability to stop droplets in the air. For instance, right off the bat in the study, the researchers note that loosely folded fa- face masks or bandana style coverings, they provide the least stopping capability for small respiratory droplets, whereas well-fitted homemade masks with multiple layers of quilting fabric or even off-the-shelf counter uh, masks, they tend to be the most effective when it comes to reducing jet distances. I have uh, like a buff that covers my whole face and my whole beard, and it's like tightly sealed. It seems like a pretty good option, but I don't know how thick the material is. Do you think that's any good? Do you know what material you're using? I think it's cotton. Okay, so yeah, so that's where, what I really like about the study, because if you look at the photos too, they have diagrams of this actual (laughs) mannequin head emulating a human cough and sneeze, and they show you that a homemade stitched mask of quilting cotton even, it limits the jet distance to about two and a half inches, and that's that's, that's pretty good. Or for instance, a bandana mask made out of elastic t-shirt material it will limit your droplet range to about three feet and seven inches. Or like a handkerchief, if you have it out of cotton, it will go about to one foot and three inches. So there's a whole chart of different materials and their jet distances. And this, it's not based on any kind of hierarchical model where they tell you that this is the best and this is not, but they definitely tell you that here's what will work to this effective degree and here's what won't. So another interesting thing that the research noted was that that six foot figure that we keep hearing isn't necessarily all there is to it. There is growing concern that the coronavirus may spread farther than previously thought in those tiny airborne particles we keep hearing about. It's commonly understood that those particles, for example, from a sneeze, can spread up to six feet without a mask. One of my favorite parts about the study is that they kind of poke a hole at this conventional wisdom that we've been told uh, since the beginning of everything, essentially where we were told that six feet is the optimal distance, right? And this is where you should be limiting it. But it turns out that researchers in the paper note that without a mask, your droplets can fly beyond the highlighted six feet and they can exceed at least eight feet. So different materials, and again, their ability to stop jet distances and how effective they are at limiting droplet transmission, that really does affect the range 
down to little things like things that I don't necessarily, well, initially did not take so seriously was the fitting of it. You know, I usually would just loosely cover it around my ears and just step out. But then I looked at the study and you can see that the slightest movement and the slightest tightness has a huge effect on how far and wide your droplets go in the ear. So this study actually changed your behavior? It did to a degree, definitely did. And I think the power of a study like this, particularly of quantitative analysis, codified and visualized data like this, is that it gives us tangible demonstrations of how exactly our body works, of how exactly our droplets work, how far they can go. Because beyond this, most of the time, the two forms of information we're getting is through sound bites from public health officials and through articles or research papers, right? So when you just see a literal mannequin head right there coughing and sneezing and you can see the droplets in the air, you quite literally see the physical presence of these droplets and you understand, okay, it's not, it's, it's actually a lot serious than what I thought. It does have an unmistakable effect on your behavior, especially mine. When I saw it, I was like, okay, so this is how far I can go because the mannequin actually sneezes and you can see the droplets just sprout forward. You can follow Maureen on Twitter, at Maureen Kasana. Now on to today's second story. Black queer designers created the blueprint for streetwear as we know it. The late Willie Smith, a pioneer of gender nonconforming fashion, is among the people who laid the foundation for brands like Hood by Air, Supreme, and others. Writer Iman Sultan reported on the past and present of the Black queer streetwear movement for InputMag.com. Here she is reading an excerpt from her piece. The first designer to link streetwear with the runway was Willie Smith, a Philadelphia-born gay Black man whose label Willie Wear generated $25 million per year and sold off the racks at Macy's and Bloomingdale's in the late 1970s to 80s. Smith passed away from AIDS-related complications at the age of 39, but his legacy lives on in streetwear's mainstream appeal and fashion today. Welcome to the show, Iman. Thank you for inviting me. So your piece focuses in part on the late Willie Smith, who's the subject of a recent show at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. When people hear the name Willie Smith, I want them to think that this is a person who cares enough about them that he's taking the time to design and create and think for them. What can you tell us about him and his importance to the world of streetwear? So Willie Smith wasn't exactly the most conventional fashion designer to lay a blueprint in the industry meaning that he came from a very working class background in Philadelphia. He was black and he was gay. So Willie Smith did an internship with Arnold Scossi, a designer, where he kind of learned the ins and outs of fashion designing, especially elite or high fashion designing. And then Smith went to Parsons on a scholarship, but he was expelled because he had an openly gay relationship. So from the beginning, he was always working from the margins, but he was also very unapologetic in the kind of clothes he was producing and the kind of fashion or aesthetic that he was working towards. Your piece goes into the erasure of black queer designers from the mainstream streetwear world. What caused this to happen? 
I think the primary reason is obviously the mainstream capitalist appropriation of streetwear because streetwear at its core it means what people are wearing on the streets but recently i would say maybe in the past 5 or 8 years or so we've seen streetwear start from this alternate fashion movement and become kind of mainstream in that almost everyone is incorporating this streetwear or athleisure component to their clothes and to what they're selling and obviously now we have Louis Vuitton which is one of the biggest legacy fashion houses in the west which is producing luxury streetwear so in some ways this is good because streetwear is getting that kind of respect in the fashion world but then what ends up happening is that it's torn from its roots and its roots are really smith obviously but it's also queer people who have always existed in the street i think from the beginning there was this influence of harlem ballroom culture and voguing the name voguing comes from vogue magazine the movements that define the dance are based on model poses from the fashion publication Willie Ninja, who's called the godfather of voguing, also drew inspiration from martial arts, ballet, gymnastics, and even pantomime. That was being incorporated into these designs and into their aesthetic and the clothes that they were making. And for some reason this isn't emphasized in mainstream streetwear because I feel more so the hypermasculine components of streetwear are emphasized maybe because they're more palatable or it's what people think consumers want. I'm not sure exactly what the reason for that is. I think some of the damage it's done is such that like even some of the designers I spoke to for my story, not all of them would even consider themselves streetwear or they don't feel like they fall into the mainstream definition of streetwear even if what they're making is crop tops and hoodies and sweatpants. In your article you talk about Hood by Air which is pretty high profile. What other black queer contemporary streetwear brands should we know about? There's obviously Stuzo which is run by a black lesbian couple. They're based out of LA but their aesthetic is also very New York City. They use graphics like they have graphic tees that are very unapologetic. Then there's Flemons by James Flemons. Don't touch my Who also designed the outfits for Solange's "Don't Touch My Hair" music video? His aesthetic, I think, is a little, little bit more. Um, it's like it's streetwear, but it's also more. Um, how to put it? I don't want to say fancy, but it, like you know, it is a little bit more fancy in that it's very contemporary, but it's also elegant at the same time. Another brand that I mentioned in my story. was no sesso which means no gender in uh Italian and it's by Pierre Davis who is a black trans woman she's the head of the brand and the obviously the primary fashion designer so that that isn't really streetwear in the conventional sense but it uses a lot of streetwear influences in what it's making which is like you know very feminine clothing which is like very um effervescent using gauze and so that's like very much more in my opinion high fashion it's not stuff that you can wear every day but there are definitely and i think this has to do with how streetwear has proliferated into the high fashion world there are a lot of streetwear influences in what she creates which i think is cool because 
streetwear does have a very chameleon-like quality. And I think increasingly we're seeing that more and more as streetwear becomes a part of mainstream fashion. You can follow Iman on Twitter at Karachi, I-I-T-E, and I am at Mark Yarm. For more news from the world of technology and culture, visit InputMag.com. You can click on the links in the show notes for the stories we discussed today. New episodes of Input Output are released three times a week. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. You can find Input Output on your smart speaker or whichever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.